This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Sam Slayton, Deputy Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Rose Fox this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from the PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to us at Pub Weekly Radio. That's Pub WKLY Radio on Twitter. Today we'll be talking with Jeffrey Salingo, author of College Unbound The Future of Higher Education and What It Means for Students. Then PW Features Editor Dick Donahue will take us through some hot forthcoming arts and entertainment books. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So, Sam, um, you handle a lot of our history and politics books. Have you noticed uh, anything on the list that catches your fancy? I do. It's It's been interesting to see, uh, you know, I cover history and military history, and it seems there's, uh, we're never satisfied with any, with with the amount of books we already have sure. on a particular topic. Right. Um, and right now, it's kind of interesting, out, out of the top 20 books on the, on our hardcover nonfiction list, three of them have to do with the American Revolution, uh, something you would have thought had been covered Plenty by now, right? Mm-hmm, sure. Um, we've got Joseph J. Ellis's Revolutionary Summer, The Birth of American Independence. Mm. Uh, now, this is a Pulitzer Prize winner and a National Book Award winner. Uh, he wrote Founding Brothers and American right. Sphinx. And this is uh, a chronicle of exactly what it says it's a chronicle of. Uh, the mm-hmm. summer, but from uh, it's kind of a long summer, he admits, from May to October of 1776. Um, but he, uh, he gives a, a really concise rundown of of just the first few months of the revolution and how that essentially set the tone for the rest of the, of the war. Um, in our goal, we praised him for, uh, his characteristically seductive prose. We said his insights are frequent and his sketches of people and events are captivating. And I think that's, that's why, um, new titles on subjects like this can, can keep happening because there are these authors that can revivify some of these main characters. Well, someone, especially like, uh, Joseph Ellis, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another guy who's who's great at this is Nathaniel Philbrick. Oh, he's great. Yeah. So so what is that? What is his book? On? His book is specifically about the Battle of Bunker Hill, a city, a siege, a revolution. Um, so we've we've got a couple titles coming out. In addition, um, Mark Levin's George Washington: The Crossing, and and like Bunker Hill and Revolutionary Summer, they're about very discrete moments in the war. They aren't any of these grand retrospectives like. Um, like, for example, Rick Atkinson's um, The Liberation Trily- Trilogy, which covers all of World War II essentially in three volumes. Um, George Washington, The Crossing, covers exactly what you think it is. Right. George Washington's Crossing of the Delaware um, and kind of the implications of that. And then Nathan- Nathaniel Philbrick focuses just on the Battle of Bunker Hill in, in his newest. And, um, you know, he's he's got a great track record as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's on the bestseller list, so we can imagine... The rest of the work to come out from these guys is going to be up there as well. Well, I, it is interesting that you say these three books focus on a specific incident uh, or, 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 or a time in these wars. I mean, we've we've been having, you know, we've seen these great histories, you know, uh, all-encompassing histories. And I wonder if now 
people, you know, we know the history. Now let's get to the micro part of it. I mean, and, and it also allows writers to perhaps focus on, on a character or two or three to really help bring the war, that aspect of the war, uh, to life. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I wrote about this briefly um, in, the mag- in this week's issue of the magazine. Oh, yeah. In, insofar as the way that, that historians tend to approach these topics that you know, are really, really old is either going seriously micro or seriously macro. So you've got these big grand retrospectives mm-hmm. and then these, these more focused books. And I, I think you're right. It does allow them to, um, to draw readers into an aspect of a, of a, of a battle or a war or a conflict that people might not know about. And um, so it makes, it make, it, it, it makes um, an old historical event or time period seem fresh again. And I think that's, um, that's the job of the historian that wants to reach not just an academic audience, mm-hmm. but also... Um, you know, the public at large. And uh, where are these books sitting on our list right now? Revolutionary Summer is at number 13 on right. our list. Mark Levin's George Washington, The Crossing is at number 15. And Bunker Hill is at number 19. Pretty solid. So not, not too bad. Yeah. Wow. And three, three books on the same. I, I, it used to be like the Revolutionary War was the overlooked war, just like World War One. And so, you know, you had you know, people focused on the Civil War rather than Revolutionary War, World War Two rather than World War One, and, and of course Vietnam more than Korea. There's always one uh, war that overshadowed another. And it seems like here the Revolutionary War is is kind of coming back. And I wonder why that is. I don't know. It does seem to be on vogue right now. Um, speaking of Rick Atkinson, uh, who just finished up his liberation trilogy with the guns at last light. Um, he's decided now that he's done with his project that's he, that he's been working on for about 14 years, he's now turning his attention to the revolution, which he calls um, our Aeneid. He says it's, it's, you know, it's America's creation story. And um, y- you know, he's, he's written about uh, several different conflicts. They've all been great bestsellers. Um, he's, he's gotten two Pulitzers for his work. Um, but I don't really know what's behind the, the sudden focus, um, back on the, back on the revolution. But I, I imagine we can expect to see, um, many more of these titles in, in the coming months, in the coming years. So, um, what do you have for us in terms of fiction, though? You, you can only take so much military history in, in a week, you know, right, so exactly. you need to lighten up every once in a while. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and I'm about ready to answer Sam's question about our fiction list. So right now, number one, uh, debut right here is Dan Brown's Inferno, and uh, we're not so shocked by that. Uh, and just, just uh, I thought I'd read a little bit of our review. Uh, Though the prose is fast-paced and sharp, the burdensome dialogue only serves plot and backstory and is interspersed with unfortunate attempts at folksy humor. Um, so this is one of those books that we would maybe refer to in the industry as re- review proof, right? It doesn't exactly matter what our review right, exactly. Say. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, the book is, you know, debuting at number one, selling, uh, quite a few, uh, thousands of copies right now. <laughs> how many, do we know how many, how I, many I thousands? To, I don't have the number right in front of me, but, but it's, it's quite a bit enough. And in second place is uh, number two is uh, And the Mountain's Echo. This is the uh, Kalito Saini book. Uh, it's his third novel after A Thousand Splendid Sons, which follows a close-knit but uh, all-separated Afghan family through love, wars, and losses more painful than death, we say in the review. The beautiful writing, full of universal truths of loss and identity, makes each section a jewel, even if the bigger, bigger picture, which eventually expands to include Perry's life in France, sometimes 
feels disjointed. So it's another uh, a mixed review overall positive, but again, this is um, number two, and it's selling, uh, and, and this is, uh, people are buying it. Yeah, and, the Kite and, Runner has ensured his, his reputation, so yes, people are going to buy it no matter what. Exactly. And uh, debuting at number three is Carl Hyacin's Bad Monkey. Uh, he's the author most recently of Star Island and uh, we know him from uh, he always has this crazy cast of characters Florida inspired wacky zaniness so uh, and that's at number three and this is his most recent book Um, and that's really the so that's the rundown of one two three fiction and one thing I I, I do want to talk a little bit more uh, filling in where you were at nonfiction um debuting at number 21 we're almost going to go in order of the books that uh you were just talking mm-hmm. about is this book by lily capel and it's called the astronaut wives club now this was uh one of our top 10 in our in our spring uh 2013 history and military history exactly. announcements that's right which uh i think you combined i did yes you did so yeah so this one is an entertaining and quirky throwback where journalist Capel revisits the ladies who cheered and bolstered their men to victory in the U.S. space program from the late 50s through the 70s. And it's really kind of interesting. It's like this is the all the wives of the, uh, of the space program. And I, I went to a, a, a lunch of hers that Grand Central put on, and, and she was talking, and she talks about this in the book too, that these wives are just kind of thrown into this, but they were expected to be to portray themselves and their husbands as like the perfect family. And, and they, and for, for astronauts, for men who are going to become astronauts, they interviewed them. Uh, part of their background check was checking the men and their wives to make sure that they had stable relationships. So even before this, 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 uh, before these women became famous, uh, NASA had already checked into their backgrounds to make sure that these couples were together so as not to cause anxiety for the astronauts uh, once they did leave uh, Earth's orbit. That's really interesting. It seems like it, it, it addresses, um, you know, another side of American society that that we it is maybe hinted at, but we don't get much, we don't see much of in, in a show like Mad Men. You know, we're kind of obsessed with like the 50s and 60s right now. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But sure. this is something that you don't often think about the, um, you know, right. the wives of astronauts. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and we gave the book a starred review. And I think, uh, you know, we said this is really a great snapshot of the times. I mean, maybe in ways like Mad Men, but this is the astronauts one. And uh, it, it is interesting because even though they were expected to be, to depict, to show themselves, to be stable, perfect housewives. I mean, there was a lot of of, of turmoil that, that lurked underneath. And, and also, I think basically the stress of having to project oneself as being perfect. Is enough to stress you out to the yeah, point right, where you can't right, handle exactly, it anymore. Exactly. You know, it's interesting. The um, I just read that, that NASA recently received the second highest number of applications ever for astronaut positions. It received something like 6,000 applications for its class of 2013. Right. They accepted eight. And, but this is the first time in NASA history that there's been gender parity amongst the astronauts. So there's four men, four men and four women. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, in a couple of decades, maybe we'll have an astronaut's husband's club. Ah, very we'll good. See. We should look out for that. Maybe that's a book prospectus <laughs> for one of us. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We've been talking about our bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. And, and right now, I think I'm going to uh, take a look at um, books that are coming up. 
we have uh, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. This is coming out uh, this week and with a print run of 250,000 copies. So uh, that's something to look out for. And I'm expecting this is going to land pretty, pretty tightly in the top 10 uh, fiction list. So. It, it's interesting that Neil Gaiman chose to, uh, to go on a, a social media blackout for the, for the next month, right when his book seems to be publishing. Oh, that's yeah, he's amazing. decided not to. He's that, decided yeah. not to be online or or on any kind of social media for the next month. Really? So this yeah. is going to be a good test. This will be a very good test. <laughs> yeah. The author so cannot even advocate cannot, for himself, right. at least in the on the digital sphere. <laughs> right. But I don't think that'll be any 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 problem for the book. Uh, another book we have coming out. Uh, there's two others: "Sex, Lies, and Cookies," an unrated uh, memoir by Lisa Glassberg. Uh, William Morrow uh, backing this with 75,000 copies. "The Wonder of Aging," uh, Michael Gurian, uh, Atria Books, is putting out 50,000 copies. And uh, one book that that we review that's that's pretty interesting: um, "Run, Brother, Run" by David Berg. Scribner's publishing it. And we say that in this dark, engaging memoir, renowned lawyer Berg examined his troubled family and the catastrophic shock of his older brother Alan's murder in 1968. And David follows this and, and just investigates and, and looks back about his uh, brother's murder. And what's kind of interesting is that the murderer was Charles Harrelson, uh, who's a contract killer and the father of actor Woody Harrelson. Um, so this this is something that's going to be I, I, I think uh, caught you know brought up in the news. that's one of those bizarre connections that you, you just really you can't make up right exactly yeah. exactly I'm Mark Rotella and I'm Sam Slayton and this is Publishers Weekly Radio next up Jeffrey Salingo will tell us what's in store for the college class of 2020 we'll be right back when I have an asthma attack I feel scared it's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes I, my parents have to take me to the hospital. Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is on my chest. A little whistle sound comes out when I breathe. But while your child may suffer from asthma, Asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call 1-866-NO-ATTACKS. That's 1-866-662-8822. Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many. I feel like a fish with no water. Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Sam Slayton, filling in for Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Jeffrey Salingo on the line. He's editor-at-large of the Chronicle of Higher Education and the author of College Unbound, The Future of Higher Education. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeffrey. It's great to be here. So you say that the uh, American higher education system is broken. What's wrong with it? and How can we fix it? Well, it's become incredibly expensive uh, at a time when most uh, family incomes are pretty stagnant. And uh, only about 50% of students who start college uh, aiming to get a bachelor's degree end up finishing college. 
about 400,000 students drop out of college every year. So we're it's beginning it's getting more expensive at the same time that the uh, kind of the outcomes are not as good as we should expect. And there's a lot of rhetoric around education. It's focused on getting a job after graduation. I mean, is is this the end of of liberal arts or or is there room for for an education in the arts and expanding the mind as well as say developing job skills? Actually, I, I think this is kind of a false argument, um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that if you talk to employers, as I did for this book, you know, most employers value kind of a liberal arts foundation. Uh, and so this idea that you can get a liberal arts foundation and get specific training in a, uh, in a skill in, in, in college, I think, is incredibly important because it's not only the first job after college that you're preparing for, but it's the fifth job. And, and CEOs really understand, particularly, that a liberal arts foundation helps teach you how to learn, and, and that helps you get that fifth job, although the skills might help you get the first job. Mm-hmm. And so uh, should, should everyone go to college? Everyone should go to college, um, right. but the, our definition of college, I think, is expanding. Um, you know, it's not just a four-year uh, campus-based experience that many of us think of. It's kind of that's kind of our romantic Hollywood vision of college. But it includes two-year colleges. It includes other providers now, you know, such as the the Khan Academy and the MOOCs. Um, but I think that at some point. In, in the person's lifetime, they need education after high school. I think the economy, the global economy, just demands that now. I think the question, though, increasingly is is whether everybody is ready for college at 18 uh, or whether some students kind of need to take a break, uh, get an internship, get an apprenticeship, get a job, do national service. Uh, and I think we should expand the options available to 18-year-olds after high school and then go to college at 22 or 25. Right, sure. So you mentioned in your book, Jeffrey, that um, a lot of people have begun to view college as a credentialing process rather than a life experience. And you mentioned earlier those MOOCs, the massive open online classes or, or, or hybrid classes that combine online lectures with in-person small group discussions. Um, do you think that those alternatives um, abet the view of college as a credentialing process, seeing as how it detracts from the social experience of college? I think that, again, uh, both the the hybrid and the MOOCs and online only are uh, a kind of a means to the end. And then, and, when, and I think that when students take any of those uh, uh, efforts, they're not just doing it alone. I mean, online education, for example, most 18-year-olds do not want to go to college online exclusively. Online education, actually, as I note in the book, online-only education, is actually its growth has flattened uh, in the U.S. In, in recent years because it's really aimed at time-pressed adults who, have, who are also place-bound and have very few options of where to go to college. But that doesn't mean that the traditional 18-year-old just wants to go sit in a lecture hall and get lectures delivered at them by a professor standing at the front of the room. It's really kind of an old style of education, and to be honest with you, it's never really worked very well. Uh, We know that students who sit in large lecture halls don't learn uh, as well as students in, in, in smaller classes. So I think the, the, the question for the future is really about using technology in appropriate ways to make the experience um, uh, where, it, where it makes sense to use technology uh, to lower costs and in, in improve, uh, improve outcomes. Uh, and then the residential experience kind of uh, uh, meets the rest. Mm-hmm. So well, tell us a little bit about your book and how you came to this subject. So 
I've been covering higher education from the institutional perspective for 16 plus years as a reporter and editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education. So the Chronicle of Higher Education you know, is the number one news source for people who work at colleges, you know, faculty members, uh, trustees, presidents, other administrators. And a couple of years ago, I went to a, a, a day-long session at Harvard Business School that was put on by Clay Christensen. He was kind of the father of disruptive innovation in the U.S. And he was about to come out with a book on, on higher ed and how the idea that new players and the higher ed system would kind of take over for established players. And, and I, to be honest with you, didn't quite believe half of what I heard that day. But what was really clear to me was that I was covering this day in and day out. And, and most of the parents I was speaking to of, who had kids in like middle school and high school were starting to think that the, the, the college experience that their kids would have would be similar to the experience that they had 30 or 40 years ago. And I was really starting to get the sense that that was not true. It was definitely going to be different. Um, and so I really wrote this after 16 years of covering it from an institutional perspective. I really wrote this book for, for students and parents in mind. And it really, in, in, in the process, changed my opinion of the industry that I've covered. And, and, and I had a much more negative outlook on it than I did as a, as a reporter covering it from kind of the inside. So you mentioned earlier that, that there might be other options for, for students graduating high school. You know, maybe they could take a gap year like, like some people do in Europe. Yep. Um, but, I, you, you know, you hear a lot about people who graduated from college during the recession not being able to find jobs. And now they're worried that once the economy gets back on its feet, they're going to be competing with a, relative, with a, a younger job uh, a pool of applicants. So do you think that, um, that skipping a, a year or two between high school and college is going to... Uh, lead to that same sort of anxiety that, you know, why would a company hire somebody who took a couple years off and is now older when they enter the job market as opposed to somebody who's fresh out of college? I, I don't think so, because it depends on what that person does with that, that gap year experience. You know, I'm not saying just go travel the world. Uh, I'm saying kind of have a structured experience, you know, whether it's doing national service, whether it's doing an apprenticeship uh, or some other structured service uh, or job that I think matures you uh, beyond much more than some ways than college can mature you. You don't have to show up for an 8 a.m. class, but you do have to show up for a job. Uh, I think it allows you to work alongside adults. You know, some of the more interesting people I met in reporting this book are people who did take time off from uh, after high school, and they kind of decided what they really wanted to do. It gave them much more of a serious mission in terms of going to college. And so when they got there, they were less likely uh, to drop out or to, or to kind of uh, skate through college. They, they took it much more seriously. So in many ways, I think that employers would value students who took off, uh, who took off that year and kind of took the time to find themselves, but also actually did something with that time. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with education expert and author Jeffrey Salingo about his book, College Unbound, The Future of Higher Education. Jeffrey, how, you had mentioned before that parents, you've talked to anxious parents who, who thought that their uh, kids' college education would be similar to the ones they had 30 years ago. What, what has changed in the last 30, 40, or even 50 years? Uh, that's the problem. Not much has changed, and and I think that a lot will change in the next uh, five or, t or for ten years. You know, the basic the basic central part of of college in in the classroom hasn't changed much. It's the things around it 
the outside the classroom experiences have changed a lot. So, you know, the dorms of 20 years ago with cinder block walls where you had to live with two or three other people and share a bathroom now have been replaced by these luxury dorms where, where students are able to live alone, eat sushi in the dining hall, go work out in, in, in rec centers with, uh, with climbing walls and, and lazy rivers. Uh, they don't have to work very hard. They get easy A's. Um, and when they go to the classroom, uh, the experience is pretty much the same as it was for their parents, where they you know, sit in the classroom at the back of the room, and there's a couple hundred students in front of them, and there's a professor at the front of the room lecturing. The only difference now is that instead of reading the newspaper, like I did when I was in college 20 years ago, now students <laughs> could surf, uh, surf the Internet and, and, and post to Facebook. So one thing that uh, I know has changed in the past uh, several decades and a lot of people are talking about now are rising tuition rates. Um, for example, Brooklyn College, part of the, the City University of New York, was free up until I believe the late 60s or early 70s. It's still relatively cheap, um, but now it costs something. It costs several thousand dollars a semester. And Cooper Union right now, which has also been historically a free institution, is 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 trying to begin charging their students tuition. What do you think can be done to work against this, or do you see it as as a necessary way for these institutions to compete with the private market? Well, the, the fact of the matter is that the days of free tuition are, are completely over. You know, the University of California system used to be the greatest deal, where it was free and had some of the most prestigious public universities in in the, in the country. Uh, and so, tuition is you know is a, is a part of the world we live in now. The problem is though is that tuition has kind of reached its peak in terms of these big increases we've seen over the last decade or so. And, and colleges are just not going to be able to increase tuition the way they have been, mainly because family incomes are flat. Uh, and, you know, and, and basically family incomes are where they were back in the early 1990s. And tuition is not even close to where it was uh, in the early 1990s. And so that's why you see a lot of colleges now really trying to figure out new ways of, of getting money. Um, and, and, and many are struggling uh, in that. And that's why, you know, the top 100 colleges in this country really don't have anything to worry about. But it's all the others uh, that do. So I want to turn the, the question to uh, uh, technical schools. I, I, I was having a conversation with a uh, friend of mine who both of us college educated, and uh, his son is doing really well in school. He's still in grade school. And he had mentioned something about, you know, when, when his son gets older, he thought it would be fine for him to go to a technical school because it seems in some parts of the country – uh, plumbers and you know, electricians and other blue-collar jobs are, are making a pretty decent living. What, what do you think about technical schools? Or, or maybe I should also ask this, will the technology advance so much that many of our blue-collar workers will have to learn certain bits of technology in college? Well, this, you know, first of all, I mean, some I don't think technology will replace, you know, the plumber and the electrician. Uh, at least I don't foresee that in in, in the foreseeable uh, future. And in some places, you know, there's a lot of uh, data now on salaries after graduation. And and I was just looking at data from Texas, where the average two-year technical degree graduate makes eleven thousand dollars on average, more than the bachelor's degree graduate uh, from Texas colleges. So it just proves that, you know, sometimes a, a two-year technical degree is all you need. But I think the important part there is that it used to be that you can work in a blue-collar job and work on an assembly line and not need a college degree. Mm-hmm. In almost all of these jobs now, you do. Um, you know, even to work in an auto plant or these other jobs where 
the machinery is so technical that having kind of the basic knowledges, knowledge that you would get at a, at a two-year college in particular is absolutely necessary. So you asked earlier if uh, you know, going to college is necessary for everyone. Yes, and that's why, because almost every single job now demands an education past high school. So it, it sounds like more and more people are, are, are pursuing either two- or four-year degrees um, and there's, so there's, in, in a sense, this kind of um, degree inflation happening. So what about, you know, higher, higher education, master's programs and Ph.D. programs? What do you see in the future for, for those kinds of programs? Well, you know, most of my books focus uh, on the undergraduate level, but you have been seeing credential creep, especially in health, the health field, for example. You know, jobs that used to require a two-year degree now require a master's degree. Jobs that used to require a bachelor's degree now require a, a Ph.D. And so we've seen this tremendous uh, credential creep. And I wasn't quite sure whether it was the colleges kind of pushing this because they wanted more revenue by increasing enrollments in these new programs, and thus the kids would graduate and they would go in the job market and suddenly the employers would say, hey, look at all these people now with PhDs. Maybe we should start requiring PhDs. So it's kind of a, a, a question of a chicken and egg thing here, what came first. Um, and so, uh, so really what you're seeing is kind of this, uh, this, credential, this credential creep. But the problem in some PhD fields, for example, if you want to get a PhD and, and teach at a university, there's just not many jobs there. So I think we're going to see certain PhD and master's fields kind of take off depending on the job market. But, you know, people, most people go for a master's or PhD to get a specific job, where the, the bachelor's degree is really kind of the thing that people now think of as the new high school degree. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with education expert and author Jeffrey Salingo about his new book, College Unbound. And I wanted to ask a question, which may be a bit out of the purview of your book, uh, but how do student loans and the price of education affect people's decision-making, I guess, around which college to go to or, or whether to go to college at all? Well, I mean, it really does enter into the cost problem. And, and I, I do focus an entire chapter on kind of mm -hmm. this trillion-dollar problem, which is now the amount of outstanding student loans we have. And, and the, you know, $30,000 is now the average debt that a student graduates uh, college with. And That's it, amazing. It's a huge problem um, yeah. because it really delays a lot of other life decisions, you know, buying a house, having kids, getting married. Uh, et cetera. And I think that, that students really need to look at, students and families really need to look at the cost of college before they start putting together their list. You know, college is a very emotional decision. And if you base it just on where you would like to go rather than where you can afford to go, uh, I think that you might dig yourself a pretty deep hole financially. So at what point in your journalism career did you start thinking about how higher education can change? I mean, what got you interested in it in the first place? Um, probably it goes all the way back to my college days. You know, I was editor of my student newspaper at Ithaca College, my undergraduate institution, and I kind of always had an interest in it then, and then, you know, started working for the Chronicle uh, 16 years ago, and these are just kind of fascinating places. I mean, people don't realize how big of an industry this is. You know, three-plus million people employed in this industry across the country in many towns and cities. Colleges are the largest employer. You know, $900 billion worth of goods and services bought and sold. Uh, every year, 18 million students in the in the system. So you know it's a huge industry, and and I don't think for the most part it's been covered that way. Um, and so I think higher ed has kind of gotten away with a lot over the years because everybody thought of it as you know kind of almost the Catholic Church in that way. And and I think now people are are seeing it as an industry and, and covering it more critically. So tell us about some of the feedback that you've been getting. Um 
from people who work in higher education? <laughs> well, I think that people who work in higher ed and are, are, you know, higher ed is almost like journalism in that way, where, where it's kind of a, a self-critical uh, industry. You know, people are, are willing to take criticism and, and figure out how to make themselves better. And I think that people who understand I wrote this book for, for students and parents in mind read it in a different way than people who think I wrote it for colleges. If they think I wrote it for colleges, they, they take kind of offense to, especially the first three chapters, where I'm pretty critical of how the industry operated over the past uh, past decade. But if they realize that we're really here to serve the students and we haven't been doing a good job and how can we do a better job in the future, I think then they, uh, they, they, they take a little bit more positive view of, of the book. But I have gotten some pretty negative feedbacks from some people uh, who don't like the, the kind of the pot shots I took at, uh, what they consider pot shots I took at the industry. Uh, like what? What kind of pot shots do they think you took? Uh, well, they think I, I kind of, uh, you know, really again the first three chapters, but things like the marketing. You know, I'm, I'm kind of I took a very negative view of of the amount of money, time, and effort colleges spend on marketing to students. It's really like they're trying to brand themselves like toothpaste now, uh, right. and I, I, you know, and I think that has really actually in some ways run up the cost of of college. You know, the the student loan mess uh, and 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 all the results of of that, and how I don't think there's a lot of academic rigor on some campuses. In other words, they treat students as customers, and thus everybody gets an A. So it's things like that right. that they think, oh, you know, you're, you're just buying into the, into the popular culture on this stuff on campus. But, you know, there's a lot of studies that back much of this up. And you're talking about the marketing. I mean, one might also, uh, you know, note that the ch one change maybe have been in the marketing of uh, many colleges' sports programs. Yep. Yeah, and you know, I, I was just actually reading a review of my book today, and somebody said, "Why didn't you, you know, cover athletics?" Uh, and you know, I didn't. I kind of, kind of ignored all that. Uh, there's, that's a whole book in itself. Sure. Uh, and um, you know, but you know, they are oper You know, these are places or mini cities. You know, these some of these big campuses. When you think about it, you know, they have their own police force, housing and food and entertainment. Not only sports teams are the huge, big part of that entertainment conglomerate that they that they operate, but you know, you have theaters and movies and other things uh, that they're doing. So, uh, so these are pretty big businesses at the end of the day. We've been talking with Jeffrey Salinga. You can find College Unbound, the future of higher education, in stores right now. Jeffrey, thanks so much. It's been very formative. No problem. It was great to be here. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Sam Slayton. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Features editor Dick Donahue would tell us about some interesting arts and entertainment books coming out this fall, so stay tuned. Now I know you probably think a pirate like me with a peg leg and an eye patch is in search of me buried treasure, but tis not so, me mateys. My brave crew and I have pledged to plunder no more until we clean up all the garbage that comes out here from land. <laughs> Why just today, I found an aluminum can that said soda pop from the mountaintop. Somebody probably threw it on the ground and it washed into a drain pipe and into a river and into the ocean. <laughs> Now I've got the best crew in the seven seas. Hooray! But we can't do it all ourselves. No, not on our own. Lend us a hand by always recycling and disposing of your trash properly. To learn more about keeping oceans clean, visit keepoceansclean.org. Not tarnation. I mean, keepoceansclean.org. Right? That's keepoceansclean.org. Yeah, what he said. Brought to you by the Keep Oceans Clean Alliance and the Ad Council.
Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Sam Slayton, filling in for Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. Today, PW Features Editor Dick Donahue is here to tell us about some hot arts and entertainment books coming out this fall. Thanks, Dick, for joining us. Thanks for joining You're us, welcome. Glad so, to be here. So, so Dick, I know, has, uh, he's, uh, he covers a lot of the entertainment books, and, and it's really one of his favorite sections, too, when we talk about, let's see, celebrities, even dog celebrities. Mostly and dog mostly celebrities. Mostly dog celebrities. Dick is, so, a, Dick is a dog hound, yeah. as it were. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. All right, well, let's start. I, I think there might even be a dog celebrity memoir in our midst. Really? Yes, I think that there is. Oh, I think, tell us about it. Uh, well, I think that everybody who knows about the Wizard of Oz movie, which was made, of course, in 1939 <laughs> with Judy Garland, and no, I was not there then. But That's uh, not what I heard, uh, but... Well, we'll leave that one for another time, Mark. <laughs> but th- everybody probably remembers the dog in The Wizard of Oz, sure. uh, Toto, who now supposedly, has written, I say, her autobiography because Toto's real name, everyone, was Terry. Terry? Terry was her name. Was Terry? So it was a a she-dog. It was a she-dog. Not a he-dog. It was a she-dog. Not only that, but she was a Cairn Terrier. And there are those that say, I don't know if this is true or not, that she had to have a hair dye for her role in The Wizard of Oz. This is, this is, well, I started to say this is true. It is apocryphally mm-hmm. true. And so, again, because you weren't there, you don't know firsthand. I, luckily, no, I don't. <laughs> so, Dick, is this some of the doggy dirt that readers can expect in I, Toto? Absolutely. And the other thing that Terry was supposedly to uh, say about the uh, her part in The Wizard of Oz, she really downplayed Judy Garland. She said, <laughs> Judy Garland is not the star. I am Terry. I am the star. I feel like that's not very fair considering Julie Garland is no longer with us. Well, nor she is can't Terry. Herself, no, it's you know? Terry. <laughs> so so the, tell us about this book. So this is a this is a memoir a, by written by Toto. A, we, we we've had similar books. We we indeed have. This is a I guess what one could call a fake memoir mm-hmm. or an ersatz memoir. Right. But last year, those who remember the Oscar winning film the artist if you saw it and i hope you did because it was really pretty spectacular uh, there was a dog in that movie named augie and augie apparently knowing that toto had got there first augie decided that he would write his memoir and this came out uh, about I believe six or eight months ago, called simply Augie, published, I think, by Simon and Schuster, if my memory serves, which it sometimes does and sometimes doesn't. Uh, and the Augie book is hysterically funny. Not only that, Augie himself in the movie was hysterically funny. Uh, people would just point a gun, not at him, 
but people would shoot off a gun or a character would shoot off a gun. Augie would drop to the floor faster than you can say dead dog. <laughs> so so we Dick, have now we have now two. Maybe there's maybe there's a third, you know, things come in threes, supposedly. Maybe there will be a third dog memoir. Who knows? I'm Sam Slayton, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with PW Features editor Dick Donahue about some uh, some interesting arts and entertainment books. And we were just talking about I, Toto, a fake memoir from the dog who uh, who played Toto in The Wizard of Oz. And you mentioned um, Augie, the dog that, that, that starred in The Artist. Now, he had put out a fake memoir just a few months before Toto. But there's actually a long literary history tradition of this. Um, Virginia Woolf uh, wrote a bio of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's dog back, I believe, in the 20s or 30s. So I think she might claim, claim uh, the, 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 first, uh, the first place in terms of putting out canine memoirs. Well, and that may have been, of course, a real dog. I mean, oh, I didn't really mean to say that. <laughs> oh, that was harsh, Mr. Donahue. <laughs> so well, do we have any idea who wrote these fake memoirs? Uh, there was a gentleman who wrote the uh, I, Toto book. I have to confess that I don't now recall his name. He was, a, uh, he was in fact, a screenwriter and uh, supposedly just cobbled this together from bits and pieces of Toto's work in the movie. And interviews. With Toto, of course. Exactly. Fantastic. Exactly. So, well, so, okay, so moving on from, from canine, Woof. or fake canine <laughs> memoirs, what do we have some real celebrity memoirs, or, or some memoirs written by celebs themselves? Well, I think one of them that is forthcoming, yeah. I know one of them that's forthcoming is going to be uh, very popular. It is by uh, Rebecca Eaton, who for 25 years has headed up the PBS Masterpiece Theater. She's been responsible for many hits on mystery and Mm. uh, just basically the Masterpiece Theater. And uh, it has just finished the um, Downton Abbey, I should say, has just finished its third season and is has been wildly popular, and in fact, uh, Michelle Obama has been such a fan of Downton Abbey that she reportedly called the uh, publishing house in England and wondered if she could get advance copies of the next season of Downton Abbey. I guess presidential... uh, Honor has its has sure. its uh, perks. one of the many so, job perks. Sure. So this Rebecca Eaton, she's she's she herself is coming out with a biography. Or? She she is she is, and she has. And been what the is the pro- title of it? Uh, making masterpiece. And this is about her time making uh, uh, Mas- I'm assuming, masterpiece theater. Mas- masterpiece right. theater. Uh, she has been, as I said, Downton Abbey is her uh, pièce de résistance, mm. I guess. And I think that the Downton Abbey is so popular. Uh, basically, it's it's I shouldn't say this, but it's an exceptionally classy soap opera. Mm. It's set across the pond. It has fancy period costumes. It has wonderful 
writing and acting. No wonder it's uh, one of the largest and most successful series that Masterpiece Theater has ever had. Wow. And do we know who's publishing this and when it might be coming out? We don't, but if I could sh- shift through my oh, sure, sure. Uh, paperwork here yeah. while you and Mr. Sam uh, go along, we could probably figure this out. So I've been you know, following. It, it's okay if you don't. We can, we can just, I can just move to the next question, Dick. Sure. So what else do you have in terms of other celebrity books coming out? Well, there are books by... Older performers, uh, performers who, in fact, right now are no longer with us, uh, a biography of Vivian Lee, mm. who, of course, was Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, right. and she was also in Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, I remember that well. well very, I wasn't very, there, though, but, right. uh, well, we'll <laughs> but I have see seen about it that. several right, times. Right, so, right. so tell me about Vivian Lee, and tell me who's writing this uh, biography of her and uh what's what's uh what's if there's going to be any news around it or anything or well i think it will be there has not been for quite some time a biography of vivian lee so i think that that will uh certainly do well there is also coming out a biography of maureen o'hara who is approximately the same vintage as Vivian Lee, although I think O'Hara was slightly earlier in her career than mm-hmm. Vivian Lee. Uh, one of Maureen O'Hara's big roles was in Miracle on 34th Street, sure. which is a very, very popular Christmas holiday movie and continues to be. O'Hara was born in 1920, and interestingly, the facts about her death or the time of her death seem to be a little bit shrouded uh, around, apparently, around 2010 or 2011. Hmm. Wow. Indeed. I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where we're talking with PW Features Editor Dick Donahue about celebrity entertainment books, and in particular, uh, two books that are coming out, Vivian Lee, and what is the title of that one, and then the other book you mentioned? The title of the Vivian Lee book, very cleverly, is called Vivian Lee. Mm. Hmm. Very uh, creative. D- yes, indeed. Um, and what about the Marina O'Hara title? I think it, it indeed is also called Maureen O'Hara, A Biography. Just these to be clear. R- these writers are getting very clever. Wow. So, so what else do you have other than uh, do you have more silver screen starlets? Or uh, what else do you see that's coming out? I'm not too sure right now. Well, we seem to have – I mean, there seems to be every year. Uh, there seems to be one or two – uh, books by celebrity actresses or about celebrity actresses. And do you, do you find that even those we were talking about, these are actresses who, uh, were, you know, uh, were, were performing and making movies in the 1930s. Do you find that there there's still an, an interest for, for books like this? Oh, oh ab- absolutely. And in fact, one of the reasons that some of these uh, actors and actresses are still well, I hesitate to say in their in their prime, but uh, there is uh, Turner Classic Movies, mm-hmm. 
and with Robert Osborne as sure. the host. And in fact, speaking of Mr. Osborne, there is a new uh, version of the Academy Awards book, which generally gets updated every five or ten years. Mm-hmm. And this new book, which is published by Abbeville, will be out in about two months. Osborne is credited with the writing, but of course, as we know, he also does quite a bit more than writing. He's exceedingly prominent as the host on Turner Classic Movies. And just as a little P.S., I find it very amusing that not only is Mr. Osborne a New Yorker, but Mr. Osborne lives in an apartment building called the Osborne. Hmm. And I'm assuming your building isn't the Dick Donahue building. No, we've tried to talk the real estate people into changing the name, but it so far, so far, so not so good. Okay, right. We can put PW's lobbying power behind an initiative to to change the name of your building. I'll rely on you guys (laughs) to help me out with that. So we've been talking about um, a a lot of uh, of actresses and and canine actors and actresses that um that have been on at the on the screen but what about um voices behind certain characters uh, i know we've got this a book coming out um by mel blanc is that correct that i'm not familiar with i have to say well mel blanc was the um was was the voice behind bugs bunny right right that, um that I, I heard i heard an interesting anecdote about him the other day apparently he was in a in a really bad car rash car uh wreck several decades ago and he was in a coma for several weeks and he couldn't respond to anything and his doctor would come in every day and say hello Mel Blanc how are you doing and he could never respond and then one day the doctor thought okay I'm going to try something a little crazy and so he said hello Bugs Bunny how are you doing and Mel Blanc responded and three <laughs> weeks later he came out of his out of his coma so wow. there should be some interesting uh, some interesting anecdotes in that that's very interesting because there is also coming out in within the next couple of months a biography of Jim Henson. Of the Muppets. Certainly right. needs no introduction at all. And I read something that I was that touched me a great deal, which is and in his uh, memorial tributes after his death, uh, he uh, was on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He was celebrated as himself and as Kermit the Frog. And only three other people have received that sort of dual honor, if you want to call it that. Mike Myers as himself and as Shrek. Mm-hmm. Mel, oh, wow. Mel Blanc as himself and as Bugs Bunny. And Walt Disney as himself and Mickey Mouse. I find that very touching. Sure, definitely. Well... Dick, uh, it sounds like we've got a lot of books coming out uh, this this season, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot for people to uh, look forward to. We've been talking with PW Features Editor Dick Donahue. Uh, Dick, thank you so much for that roundup. You're very welcome. And that's it for today's show. I'm Sam Slayton. And I'm Mark Rotella. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If I have the, may have the last word, woof. (laughs) Very good. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80, 
Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We've been married 38 years, we're retired, and this is how we live united. We play golf and we travel, but we also decided we were going to give to and volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. I do the nursing at the clinic. I work the front office, checking in patients, greeting them, making them feel comfortable. United Way is how we contribute, because we know our time and money are going to the right places, the places that need it most and implement it best. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We even get a few bless yous. It's incredible. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic, so we don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give. Advocate. Volunteer. Live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council.